This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. When an Ohio medical student disappears into thin air during a night out, a massive investigation fails to uncover any trace of him. One of the Midwest's most baffling mysteries is explored in this episode of Last Seen Alive. This episode of Last Seen Alive is brought to you by Audible. This week, I finished listening to No Stone Unturned, the true story of the world's premier forensic investigators. That's the book I told you about last time, where a team of forensic experts assemble to bury dead pigs in all kinds of secret graves so they can study the process of decay and use their observations to become the world's foremost experts in locating clandestine or hidden human graves. I love the pigs. And let me tell you guys, I was hooked all the way up until the end. These people have solved some of the toughest murders, cases that never would have been solved if it wasn't for their unique blend of incredible expertise. And the way the story is told makes this real-life tale just as interesting as any crime novel. The book starts with humble pig graves scattered in the Colorado mountains, and takes you to places as far away as Russia, all in the name of solving mysteries. It'd be a great first listen of the new year for any true crime enthusiast. So... Check out No Stone Unturned by Steve Jackson. It'll keep you entertained, and you'll learn new true crime investigation facts along the way. Plus, go to audibletrial.com slash lastseenalive, and you'll get a free 30-day audible trial and a free book of your choice. If you choose No Stone Unturned, you can listen to it on your drive to work, like me. And if you do, at me on Twitter and tell me what you think of the book. That's audibletrial.com slash lastseenalive. Thanks for listening to Last Seen Alive. I'm your host, Leah. I'm your co-host, Scott. Welcome to 2021, guys, and welcome to our first episode of the new year. And in our first episode of our studio. We are, yes, we are recording in our new studio we told you we were building for the first time. There's no drywall, it's just a lot of ugly exposed insulation at this point, but that's probably great for sound quality. There's also no power so i've got it running through an extension cord right now right but um construction is going well won't be that long before it's finished and at any rate today i'm going to tell you a story that i think about time after time year after year it's one of those mysteries that really sticks with me there's just something about someone disappearing from plain sight that i find hard to wrap my head around i don't know whether 2021 will be the year this case is finally solved but I hope and believe it'll be solved someday, because there has to be an explanation for what happened to this person, even if no one's been able to figure it out yet. Brian Schaefer was last seen alive on April 1st, 2006. At the time, he was a 27-year-old medical student caught in between the promise of a bright future and the pain of a recent tragedy. Brian had been raised in Ohio by his parents, Renee and Randy, His mother, Renee, was a nurse, and Brian was a lot like her in many ways. In fact, he admired her and the work she devoted herself to so much that he decided to enter the medical field as well. 
Brian was an intelligent guy and earned his undergraduate degree in microbiology without issue. In fact, he did so well that he had no problem getting into medical school at Ohio State University. By the time 2006 rolled around, he was well into his second year of medical school, which generally lasts four years in the U.S. So he'd accomplished a lot, but life wasn't all graduate-level courses and rainbows. While Brian was in school, Renee was diagnosed with a type of blood cancer. Her fight with the disease was short and intense. During that time, Brian spent a lot of time with her. The cancer forced him to see his mother, who he'd watched caring for others for so many years, become a seriously ill patient herself. In March of 2006, she died as a result of that cancer. Brian had always been close to his mom, and the time they spent together during her illness had further strengthened their relationship. Needless to say, her death affected him deeply. Just three weeks after her passing, spring break arrived. Now, a break is welcome for any sort of student, let alone medical students who are notoriously overburdened. And Brian had something special to look forward to this time. A final gift from his mom, Renee. Just months before, Renee had gifted Brian with a trip for two to Miami, Florida. Brian absolutely loved tropical locations. In fact, he was known to say that in a perfect world, he'd live by a beach somewhere playing music like Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> Brian was looking forward to taking the trip with his girlfriend Alexis, who was also a medical student. The relationship was serious enough that family and friends suspected that Brian might propose to her that weekend, so the trip was a big deal for more than one reason. Those who knew Brian said he wouldn't have missed it for the world. Just a couple days before Brian and Alexis were scheduled to take off on their tropical escape, Spring break began at Ohio State University. Like all the other medical students, Brian had been working relentlessly to prepare for exams, even pulling all-nighters to study. When he went out to a celebratory steak dinner with his dad, Randy, on Friday evening, Randy noted how utterly exhausted Brian seemed. Brian mentioned to his dad that he planned to keep the celebration rolling by going out for a few drinks with a friend of his that night, and his dad didn't think that was such a great idea. It was obvious that we could hit Brian like a Mack truck, and he needed rest. Randy didn't say that, though. Brian was 27 years old, far past the age of parent-mandated bedtimes. And if he really wanted to go out and celebrate, well, that was his decision to make. So, Brian did go out that night. At 9 p.m., he met his friend, a fellow student named Clint Florence, who he'd once shared a dorm with, at a bar called the Ugly Tuna Saluna. Oof. <laughs> Yeah. Rough name. Its slogan was Fresh Fish, Ugly Owners. <laughs> An hour Oof. later, at 10 p.m., Brian called Alexis, who was out of town squeezing in a visit with her family in Toledo before she and Brian left for their vacation. She had no way of knowing at the time, but it would be the last time they ever spoke. Now, Brian and Clint didn't just park themselves at the Ugly Tuna for the night. Instead, they hopped from bar to bar, each of them downing a shot of liquor at every stop. Around midnight, a friend of Clint's named Meredith joined them and gave them a ride back to Ugly Tuna for one last round. And this is where things went wrong. At some point, Brian separated from Clint and Meredith. I'm not sure why or exactly when. One article I read from Mel Magazine described it as the three being separated in the shuffle, as if it hadn't been a formal or intentional separation. At any rate, it was almost closing time. The lights came on, and Clint and Meredith searched for Brian. Clint called Brian's cell phone, but no one answered. 
He checked the men's restroom, but Brian wasn't there either. Clint and Meredith both wove through the crowd calling his name, but no one answered. There was no sign of him. When the bar closed, they stood outside the stores and watched the other patrons file out. Brian was not among them. At this point, they decided Brian must have gotten tired of being out and headed back to his apartment without them. Strange, yeah, but at this point it was 2am and Brian had already been exhausted when the night had begun. So they left the ugly tuna along with the rest of the patrons without Brian. The next morning, Alexis, who was still in Toledo, called Brian's cell phone so they could discuss their upcoming trip. When he didn't answer, she figured he might be sleeping in, possibly hungover. After all, she knew he'd been out late drinking with Clint. So she decided to try again later. Uh, so, I know it's a common theme with us here, the the accountability of friends. If you're with somebody... You leave with somebody. You leave with somebody. That same somebody. You don't, don't wander off on your own, and don't let them wander off without you. So, right. that that's a big thing. Even the most innocent, yeah, I'm just walking over here. It, you gotta be accountable for who you're with. Yeah, you should... Especially if somebody's that intoxicated that neither one of y'all are good to drive. You should always leave with who you came with if alcohol is involved. Otherwise, your friends could end up in one of our episodes. Exactly. So, when Alexis tried Brian's phone again later, he still didn't answer, and she began to get worried. Eventually, Brian's dad, Randy, went over to his apartment to see if he was there. Everything inside looked neat and orderly, exactly like it usually did, but Brian was conspicuously absent. So, did he live with his father still? No, he had his own apartment. Okay. An off-campus apartment. His car was parked in the lot where he'd left it. When he'd gone out with friends, he of course hadn't driven because he'd been drinking, so the car being in the parking lot didn't mean that he'd made it home the night before. All it meant was that he hadn't gone anywhere in it. Did he have any roommates? To the best of my knowledge, no. Nothing I read said anything about roommates, so I don't think he did, but I'm not 100% certain. Okay. I'm pretty certain, though. So... Brian's family and Alexis were left to wonder whether he'd gone to a friend's house for the weekend. His brother, Derek, even wondered whether he might be playing some kind of joke. After all, he'd disappeared on April 1st, April Fool's Day. According to an article from the Columbus Dispatch, Alexis came back from Toledo and went to Brian's apartment, where she camped out, hoping hard that he'd walk through the door at any moment. But when Monday morning, the day they were supposed to leave for their tropical vacation, arrived... She was still alone, and that was when she and Brian's father and brother became absolutely certain that Brian wasn't playing a joke, that he hadn't just lost track of time or acquired a nasty hangover. Something was wrong. Randy filed a missing persons report with the Columbus police, and while Randy, Derek, and Alexis searched for answers on their own, the police launched a professional investigation, and it was a thorough one. They checked local hospitals in the banks of the Olentangy River, which runs through Columbus and near the Ohio State University campus. They also searched the Ugly Tuna Saluna and even dug through the trash cans in nearby alleys. I still can't get over that name. <laughs> they checked homeless shelters and followed tips into landfills. None of these efforts yielded any information whatsoever, and 
Fearing the worst, they even had cadaver dogs in their handlers search campus grounds. What tips did they have that led them to landfills, I wonder? I have no idea, but anyone can call or email in a tip, no matter how insane. It could be a prank, it could be I mean, could at be least anything. they followed up on him. Right, they did. They really looked for him. But still, nothing. It was almost as if Brian had disappeared into thin air. And that sentiment, as impossible as it seems, became even stronger when investigators reviewed security footage from the Ugly Tuna. Now, the Ugly Tuna wasn't a street-level bar. It was a second-story facility located above other bars that occupied the first story. To reach the Ugly Tuna, guests ride an escalator up from the ground level. An escalator. Right. Keep this That in... sounds bad for drunks. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but keep this in mind during the next part of the story. Remember how Brian and Clint left the Ugly Tuna early in the night, then returned later? Yeah. Well, when investigators reviewed security footage, they clearly saw Brian entering the bar for the second time that night with his friends, Clint and Meredith. But unlike all the other guests that night, he was never seen leaving. Oh, what? Yeah, now, as strange as this is, I have to clarify. Brian was seen again on camera. At 1.55 a.m., footage shows him standing just outside the bar near the top of the escalator I mentioned, talking to two women. After the conclusion of their conversation, he walks out of the frame. Investigators say it appears as if he's walking back into the bar, and it does, but his supposed re-entrance isn't actually captured on camera. For anyone who'd like to see the last known security footage of Brian, we've got a link to a video from Dateline up on our website, lastseenalivepodcast.com. If you don't want to take the time to watch the video, no big deal. We've also got some still frames up on our website. It's also notable that several people told investigators that they'd seen Brian re-enter the bar with their own eyes. But the only evidence of this is their word. He was never caught on camera again after that point. And for the record, the Ugly Tuna was a college bar, the kind of place that serves giant cocktails and bowls with multiple straws thrown in. That's exactly what I'd expect from a place called the Ugly Tuna Saluna. Right. It lived up to its name, and it's likely that the majority of patrons there that night were intoxicated. Well, yeah, especially if it was right around spring break and they just got done with finals. Right, and there may have been the occasional designated driver, but... This bar was within walking distance of campus, so mostly it was just going to be drunk college students. Yeah. Now, at the time of Brian's disappearance, there was one exit from the Ugly Tuna bar that wasn't under video surveillance. Don't you mean the Saluna? The Ugly Tuna Saluna, but for the sake of brevity, I'm just calling it the Ugly Tuna. So, it was a temporary service elevator shaft, necessary because construction was being done within the building that housed the Ugly Tuna, along with other businesses. However, as the Mel Magazine article I mentioned earlier points out, if Brian had exited through that elevator shaft, security cameras from other nearby bars and businesses should have captured him, but they didn't. And there are a lot of cameras in the area. According to that same article, the city of Columbus is the most surveilled city in the state of Ohio, with more surveillance cameras within its limits than the cities of Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Toledo combined. I wonder where it ranks nationally. I wonder that too, but I'm not sure. So, clearly, Brian did leave the Ugly Tuna. But when and how he left, well, 
that's still a mystery 16 years later. And when it comes to what exactly happened to Brian, there are a lot of theories. I'm sure. Is this a special part where we start speculating wildly? I wouldn't say wildly because I have read some of the wild theories out there. I'm going to try to go over the ones that are most popular and least insane. Okay, but just for the sake of fun, what's the wildest one? It involves wild speculation about rampant cocaine abuse and drug deals. And let me tell you, there's no evidence whatsoever of anyone in this story being involved with drugs. But I did read quite the theory on Reddit. It, does that include, like, mafia-level cocaine deals? You know what? Why not? <laughs> it does now. <laughs> one theory, and perhaps the most optimistic one, is that Brian may have disappeared voluntarily. That is, he may have succumbed to the significant stress he'd been under and decided, out of desperation, to leave everything behind. And it's not hard to see why people may wonder if this is what happened. Remember that beach band life fantasy Brian had? Yeah. Well, sipping cocktails and strumming a guitar on the beach in a Hawaiian shirt is about as far away as you can get from practicing medicine. Well, the, did he know how to strum the guitar? You know, I've been wondering that throughout all my research, and I've never found anything to confirm whether or not he had any musical talent. So, well, can't tell you. That's a key piece to that lifestyle. It is, but either way, there had always been a big part of him that longed for a laid-back lifestyle. In fact, he liked to tell his friends that he wouldn't practice medicine forever. Eventually, he'd head south and start his own band. In the wake of his disappearance, some people couldn't help but wonder... What if he decided to fulfill that dream early? Life had been so difficult for him lately that it's not hard to imagine that he might have dreamt of an escape. Plus, grief aside, pursuing a career in medicine is a lifelong commitment. Although Brian was halfway through medical school, even when it was finished, he'd still have to complete years of residency and possibly even more advanced specialty training, depending on what area of medicine he chose to practice in. Yeah, did he have like a specialization he wished to pursue? I couldn't find anything that mentioned that, so I'm not sure. If he did, I don't know what it was. But in any case, to say that becoming a physician is a demanding path is a massive understatement. What if he decided that he just wasn't up for it? Supporters of this theory often point to some statements Brian made to Alexis in the weeks prior to his disappearance. According to an article from the Columbus Dispatch, a couple weeks before his disappearance, shortly after his mother's death, Brian asked Alexis to just go away with him. Then, just a few days before his disappearance, he told her to move on and find someone else because he was struggling so badly with his mom's death. That is pretty shocking, given the fact that some his close friends expected a proposal. Right? So, clearly, thoughts of running away from it all and even breaking up with his girlfriend had crossed his mind. But then, a lot of thoughts cross the mind when grief is fresh. Was he serious about any of it? Some people can't help but wonder. Maybe his mother's death had caused him to reflect upon his own life, and he'd realized that a medical career wasn't really what he wanted to do. And maybe he just didn't know how to break that to the people he cared about. A few months after Brian's disappearance, something strange happened. Something that sent Alexis's hopes skyrocketing. 
In the immediate wake of Brian's disappearance, Alexis had called Brian's phone frequently, desperately trying to get in touch with him. By the time six months had elapsed, she'd gotten into the habit of calling every night before bed so she could hear his voice on the voicemail message. Every time, the phone went straight to voicemail. Until, one night in September, it didn't. That night, the phone didn't just go to voicemail, it rang. It rang several times before going to voicemail. As you can imagine, the possible implications seemed momentous to Alexis. So, how would it have rang again? Or what, what would have caused that? As you can imagine, this seemed to imply that the phone, for whatever reason, had been turned back on. When a phone goes straight to voicemail, that seems to imply that it's been turned off. And that's exactly what had been happening for six whole months. But this time, it rang, rang like normal, before going to voicemail, which seemed to imply that it may have been turned back on. So, if, my, my only other thought for why it would have not, or been going straight to voicemail was the number was blocked. But, if it rang, that would mean the number was either unblocked, or that it had just been turned on. Well, I doubt it was that the number had been blocked because, of course, various family members and friends had tried calling him from numerous numbers, all with no luck. However, investigators did look into it and they determined that that night the phone had pinged off a tower in Hilliard, a Columbus suburb. It was never discovered exactly why it happened or what it meant, and it never happened again. Some theorize that it was just a glitch. However, there's another possibility, one that doesn't involve Brian or a glitch. There's a cell phone recycling company in Hilliard called eCycle. It was started in 2005, the year before Brian disappeared. If his phone was lost and found, or stolen after his disappearance, someone might have traded or sold it, and it could have conceivably wound up at eCycle where it might have been turned on and tested before having its data wiped. As best I've been able to determine, Brian's family continued to pay his cell phone bill for some time after his disappearance, as families of missing persons often do. That's really smart. Right. So, in this scenario, the phone bill was up to date and the phone could have rung if someone had called it. If this is what happened to Brian's phone, it could have been resold as a refurbished model, and no one, including its new owner, would have had a clue. I'm guessing there's, like, they don't take the phone and check to see if it's an active phone with an active line or anything. They just check to make sure it's working. Right. So, I guess that makes sense. Mm-hmm. There are some big holes in this theory, though. For one, if Brian ran away, he didn't take any of his belongings with him, and his bank accounts and credit cards were never touched. So how, exactly, could he have run away and made it these 14 years with just the clothes on his back and no other resources? It's hard- to be a really good guitarist, after all. Well, he didn't even take a guitar, so <laughs> it's hard to imagine how anyone might pull this off. Living is expensive. Yeah, it is.
and a stealthy, seamless escape to a distant locale would be hard for anyone to pull off, let alone an intoxicated person. Maybe that was just the cover. And of course, Brian's family members didn't believe him capable of putting them through something so painful, especially right after they'd lost his mother, Renee. And while it's possible that even family members could have underestimated the mental toll his mother's death had taken on him, there's still the fact that Brian has been missing without a trace for 14 whole years now. And the more time that passes without any indication that he's still alive, the less likely it seems that he's quietly biding his time, living a new life on a distant beach. For Brian's brother, Derek, the hope that Brian ran away and is still alive has become more of a wishful thought than a belief. In the Mel magazine article I've mentioned, he's quoted as saying that he's lost this hope over time. Another theory on Brian's case is that he may have committed suicide. This is essentially a darker, sadder twist on the first theory. Maybe he did leave his life behind voluntarily. Voluntarily and permanently. When it comes to the idea of suicide, skeptics may point out that Brian had no known history of mental illness and reportedly seemed to be acting normally and enjoying himself on the night he disappeared. But personally, I think that writing off the possibility of suicide would betray a fundamental lack of understanding of mental health and suicide. When contemplating the possibility of suicide, it's important to remember that Brian was under an unprecedented amount of stress. His life at the time of his disappearance was harder and sadder than it had ever been. Not only had he lost one of the people with whom he was closest, but he was left to grieve while shouldering the incredible mental and physical burden of medical school. Medical school is notoriously stressful, and depression among medical students is incredibly common, affecting one in every four medical students. According to a 2016 study, which we've linked to on our website, 27.2% of medical students experience depressive symptoms, and 11.1% experience suicidal ideation. Those numbers are staggering significantly higher than the rates of depression and suicidal ideation experienced by the general population. And those figures are for medical students in general. Not only did Brian have the typical stressors of medical school to worry about, but he just experienced his mother's rapid deterioration and death due to cancer. The odds that he may have been experiencing depression and possibly even suicidal ideation are not insignificant. I mean... Just speaking from personal aspects here, the rate of depression among people and relatives of cancer patients is also incredibly high. So you're just compounding that stress. Definitely. And remember those odd statements he made to Alexis? Yeah. Those may give us some insight into his mental state in the wake of Renee's death. By all accounts, Brian and Alexis were in love family members even believed he was about to propose to her. Does telling Alexis to leave him mired alone in his grief and find someone else sound like something an emotionally healthy person would say? No. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a statement made by someone who's really hurting and struggling emotionally. Yeah. Obviously, we don't have any way to know exactly what was going on inside Brian's mind when he disappeared but we do know that times were tough. So, 
imagine this. Maybe, like a statement to Alexis seemed to imply, Brian felt too paralyzed by grief to move forward with life like he'd been planning to prior to his mother's death. Maybe he felt unable to fulfill his responsibilities to the people, like Alexis, and institutions, like medical school, in his life. Maybe he felt like failing to do things like complete medical school and making this big, romantic proposal to Alexis would mean letting down the people he cared about. Maybe he felt that dropping out of medical school would be an insult to his mother's legacy and bailing out on Alexis would break her heart. Maybe that was too much to face, too much to bear. Maybe he felt there was only one way out. That may seem like pretty drastic thinking, but that's exactly what depression can sometimes lead to. And what I just outlined is just one of many possible scenarios. The truth about Brian's thoughts leading up to his disappearance is impossible to know. Yeah, I I keep thinking back to him at the bar mm-hmm. and how he was seen talking to those two females on camera. Mm-hmm. I really wish we knew or had any information about who they were and what that conversation was. Police did follow up with them, and they were cleared of any suspicion relating well, to his disappearance. I'm not worried about suspicion to his disappearance. My question is that that would give a really good insight into his thought process and where he was emotionally at the time. You know, it's interesting that you should bring that up because I actually put a lot of thought into that when writing um, this episode, and I didn't mention a lot about it because I didn't want to drag his name through the mud by speculating about things I don't really know. I will say that there are tons of rumors and thoughts and kind of wild suppositions online about this case, some of them crazier than others, but some people say that he was flirting with these women and that that may indicate that he wasn't as committed to his relationship with Alexis as is portrayed. Mm -hmm. However, I don't know. There's no audio on these cameras. It's just grainy footage. Yeah, I just wish that somebody would have asked more or revealed what their conversation was about and had concrete evidence on it. Right. I'm certain that investigators know what their conversation was reportedly about, but all we really have to go on is rumors. Yeah, and it, I don't like that as much because it doesn't answer anything, but I understand why. And, I mean, I can see why people would speculate that it did mean he wasn't as committed, but, I mean, they could have been former students he went to school with also at the same time and just talking about finals like it's not unusual right his body language in that clip seems kind of casual and kind of like he was goofing off a little bit but isn't that how we all are after we've had multiple drinks you know yeah does it necessarily indicate flirting no i think we'd need to hear the audio to understand what was going on and we don't have access to that so i just wish Like, that we had that insight into what his thought process was when coming up with these different theories. So do I. And um, even if he was being a creep and flirting and hitting on these women, uh, that doesn't rule out the possibility that something could have happened to him outside of his control. Yeah. Of course, when it comes to suicide, there is a major question that casts out on the theory. Where's his body? 
Usually, the remains of suicide victims are located, often without difficulty. Those who lose their lives to suicide often expect to be found and make no effort to prevent it. And even if they don't want to be found for some reason, it's of course really difficult to conceal your own body after your own death. Yeah, it, I've wondered where the body was. It looks like, or at least it sounds like, they went to pretty great depths to they did. search for him. Uh-huh. And, I mean, it's not like he just wandered off into the hills with a bunch of opioids and drifted off. No, certainly like, not. They would have found that, given the level of searches mm-hmm. they did. I mean, it's not impossible that someone can kill themselves in a location in a manner that would result in their body not being found. Brian was an intelligent guy and could possibly have come up with some sort of clever way to hide himself if that was what he really wanted to do. My other problem with that is the only place where he could have done that conceivably would have been in the club because he's not seen exiting it. I think he definitely exited the club. If he left through some strange entrance, maybe if the cameras just missed him by some very slim chance, he's obviously not still in the club, so we know that he left. That doesn't, it just doesn't fit suicide, like they're saying, with him just vanishing. Perhaps. And it's like you said in that investigators searched very thoroughly for him and never found a trace anywhere, including in the club. They even searched the river that ran close to one side of Ohio State campus. The odds are that if Brian had committed suicide, his remains most likely would have been found at some point within these past 14 years. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, it's been 14 years. It should have shown up somewhere. Right. That's very odd to me. He would have had to have picked like the perfect location to commit suicide and most most of the time people don't put that kind of foresight into suicide it's a very in the moment with depression right another possibility of course is that brian met with some form of foul play the area on which the ugly tuna was located was a relatively high crime area within an already high crime city If Brian really did decide to slip away from the bar a little early and walk home on his own, being intoxicated and alone could have made him an attractive target for any criminals. It does present a lot of opportunity. Right. Very soft target, but... Another reason to stay with your group and be accountable to each other. Yes. Don't walk home alone, drunk or otherwise, um, through a crappy neighborhood or any neighborhood, because you never know. But... If he was killed at random by someone who wanted to rob or commit some other crime against him, they obviously did a very thorough job of concealing or destroying any evidence and disposing of his remains. Which is possible, if a little unlikely-seeming. But the reality is, other than the highly suspicious nature of 14 years of complete silence, no evidence has ever emerged to suggest that Brian was subject to foul play. Still, for obvious reasons, theories have abounded, ranging from the highly unlikely to the plausible. One of the wilder ones I've read online posits that Brian experienced some freak fatal accident in the bar, and in order to avoid a possible lawsuit, the staff concealed his body and later expertly disposed of it. I mean, okay, so that's one of the most compelling arguments I've heard so far. Oh, no, it's not. Just knowing how much 
bars and restaurants don't want to be sued. Do they want to be sued? No. But, as anyone who's ever worked in the food service industry knows, you're absolutely not paid enough to merit even considering participating in or keeping quiet about the clandestine disposal of a body. There is no way. Oh, they're ugly. Uh, that was the their catch line. Never gonna happen, as Stanley would say. I'm just saying, the owners, maybe? Maybe they took matters into their own hands to solve it. Oh, like the staff doesn't know. I'm sorry, I've spent years and years working in bars, and there's just... I don't buy it. I cannot get on board with this theory. It's wrong. In my opinion, it's out of the question. Plus, the Ugly Tuna was a small and crowded restaurant. Even if the staff had all been fantastically deranged, it's virtually unthinkable that none of the other patrons would have seen anything. So, I think we can rule this one out. People do love a commotion. Right, they do. Some people, though, wonder about something more statistically likely, that Brian was killed by someone he knew. There's no hard evidence to support the theory, but many have wondered whether Brian's friend and former roommate, Clint, may know more than he's disclosed about Brian's disappearance. And Meredith is in on it, I suppose? Some people speculate about that, but she's been really compliant with investigations. She even took a polygraph test, which she passed just fine, so... That could be the perfect cover. Maybe Clint knew. Maybe Clint was using her for the cover. Perhaps, but... At any rate, it's not hard to see where their suspicions are coming from. After Brian's disappearance, Clint was less cooperative with law enforcement than anyone else involved, including Meredith. He That's surprising. Right? So he lawyered up almost as soon as the investigation began and also declined to take a polygraph test when police requested that he do so. I mean, I, I, I understand polygraph not taking polygraphs, mm -hmm. but it's still going to make you look suspicious. Right. There's nothing wrong with retaining an attorney or declining to take a polygraph test, the results of which are notoriously unreliable and aren't admissible in court anyway. In reality, Clint's decisions, although understandably frustrating to Brian's loved ones, weren't unintelligent choices. No, he's obviously going to be one of the prime suspects. Right. He was the last person to see Brian alive. Now, Brian's brother, Derek, has also claimed that Clint spoke negatively about Brian after his disappearance, which doesn't seem to fit the profile of a concerned friend. Neither does the fact that Clint didn't participate in the searches for Brian like Alexis, Derek, and Randy did. That's just kind of a douchey move. Right? So, not long after Brian's disappearance, Clint moved out of state. Some people interpret his actions as deliberate attempts to stonewall investigators and distance himself from whatever really happened that night. However, no evidence to support this has emerged. It's still looking pretty crappy, though. Right. There's no evidence that we know of, only the suspicions of people who are trying to understand what happened to Brian and why. Unfortunately, Brian's dad, Randy who'd searched so hard for answers, never got to find out what happened to his son. Just a couple years after Brian's disappearance, tragedy struck the Schaefer family again when a freak accident took Randy's life. During a windstorm, a branch fell from a tree and fatally struck him. 
That was not what I was expecting. That right? is a freak accident. This family just can't catch a break. He was discovered the next morning by a neighbor. So this left Derek, Brian's brother, as the only surviving member of his immediate family. Within just a few short years, he'd lost his mother, his father, and his only sibling, all unexpectedly. This is more tragedy than any one person should have to bear, and needless to say, it hasn't been easy for him or his wife, who also knew the family, including Brian. As for Alexis, she's achieved her goal of becoming a successful physician and is happily married with the family. Still, She's been living with this mystery for years, and that can't be easy. So what did happen to Brian? Did he leave life as he knew it behind for some distant beach? Did his grief drive him to commit suicide? Was he the victim of a random crime, or perhaps killed by someone he knew? The possibilities are staggering, and there are many more of them than we've covered in this episode. One thing we can be sure of, though, is that someone knows something, and that someone holds the power to give Brian's family and friends the closure they deserve. And rightfully should speak up. Right. If you're that someone, please report what you know. You can contact the Columbus Police at 614-645-4545, or the Central Ohio Crime Stoppers at 614-461-8477. You can also submit an anonymous tip to Central Ohio Crime Stoppers online at their website, stopcrime.org. And, just going to throw this out there, if you are Brian and you're leaving, living a second, secret second life out there on a beach somewhere and you happen to hear this, just drop somebody a line here. People want to know you're okay. Like, it's okay. So... Just throwing that out there in case. Well, just so you know, Scott, um, Brian was a enormous fan of Pearl Jam. He even had a tattoo based on some album art from a Pearl Jam album. And at a concert they did in Cincinnati, they dedicated a song just to him. So if he didn't come out of the woodwork to Pearl Jam, he's probably not going to respond to our podcast. I guess it's been 14 years. Who knows what could be the breaking point if that was what really happened to him. If by some random miracle you're hearing this and out there, just drop somebody a line. It's okay. It's gone on long enough. It's time to end this charade. Yes. Obviously, you also haven't made it big with your band or we know about you, so... Or you've been doing well enough to survive this long, so you might... I'm sure you could impress some people you knew. Mm-hmm. That's all for this New Year's edition of Last Seen Alive. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Make sure you check out our website, lastseenalivepodcast.com, for photos from the story and links to the sources we've used to write it. There are a lot of them for this episode and even some links to videos. While you're at it, follow us on Insta and Twitter at LSA Podcast. New episodes of Last Seen Alive go live every other Monday. See you then. Meanwhile, if you enjoyed what you've heard here today, please take a moment to leave the last scene alive a five-star review and tell your friends to check us out, too. We'd really appreciate it. This episode of the last scene alive has been brought to you by Audible and personally by the end of 2020. But as for Audible, visit audibletrial.com slash lastseenalive for a free 30-day trial membership and a free audiobook of your choice like... No Stone Unturned, the true story of the world's premier forensic investigators. 
written by Steve Jackson. Last Seen Alive is written and researched by you, Leah. Audio engineering and editing is provided by me, Scott. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.